The scripture comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 22 to 29. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is the word of the Lord for us, the people of the Lord. Thanks, Megan, and good morning, everyone. Let's take a minute and we'll pray together, uh, asking that God would teach us as we have the privilege of hearing God's word this morning. Father, we'd like to thank you for the privilege of gathering within these walls, for the beauty of creation around us for the evidence of your sustaining power in uh, the snow melt, in the water, in the, in the warmth, in the life that we see all around us. We're mindful as well, Father, that while we enjoy this life, there are many to the north, many to the south, facing fires right now. Uh, we pray for them. There are many in other parts of the world facing fires, literal and metaphorical, people displaced through terror, displaced through war, displaced through famine. And Father, as we're mindful of those in need, our prayer is that you would shape us as a community to be the light and hope and nothing less than the presence of Christ, not only for one another, but for our neighbors, for our city, for our world. Toward that end, shape us even this morning. We pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Morning, everyone. How many have heard the phrase, making up for lost time? Do you know the phrase? We all, all of us know it, and we've used it in different ways. Uh, and simply, put simply what it means is there are periods in our life when we feel like uh, we, the time was wasted or we did something that was not very life-giving and then uh, we rush in afterwards and we, we're doing something that is life-giving and, we're, and then we say, I'm making up for lost time. I'll give you one kind of trite example from my childhood. Uh, I grew up in the Central Valley, California, very hot, often, I think today in Fresno, 110 or something like that predicted. And so, you know, it was hot and not pleasant. And we didn't have a pool. Uh, and so uh, there was this annual thing that happened where my mom and all, her three sisters, they all went to a canning factory to can peaches. And we're not talking about like mason jars. We're talking about metal cans. Like peaches were put in a metal cans and lids were sealed on magically. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And, and this took... This took all day. Like, we'd show up at the canning factory at 8 in the morning, and my sister and I were sentenced, is the word I use, to sit there and watch this thing unfold for nine hours, you know, and then, and then my mom would say, and so, uh, tonight, we get to go to a movie, and you get to pick. And so all day, you're, you're hating the moment, but you're like this, whatever, uh, tonight, 
James Bond, right? And so, you know, what sustains you is this notion that the, you'll be able to make up for lost time. Now, that's a pretty trite example, but there are real examples. People are uh, uh, sent off to serve in the military, uh, and their marriage is disrupted, their parenting is disrupted, they come home, they want to make up, they want to make up for lost time. And there are spiritual components as well. We make bad choices, uh, we, we either drift away from our true identity and calling, or we intentionally choose to, to walk away. They're sexual choices, they're financial choices, they're, they're addictive choices, they're, they're passive choices. And so we're choosing wrongly and drifting away. And then this happens to some of us in the room, we have a wake-up call. Oh, man! And then when we have a wake-up call, aside from wanting to return, there's a regret. Does this make sense? Look at the time I've wasted. I could have been here, I'm here instead. Not only do we want to get back, but we regret the lost time. And Joel speaks to that. What does God do with the lost time? So that's one of the things that we look at this morning when we come to this small book of the Bible, the book of Joel. But the big question of the morning is, what do we do with the lost time? Uh, We wake up from this dizzying spiral into self-pity, self-indulgence, bitterness, and then we're filled with regret because of time squandered. Uh, Joel answers that through showing us two steps and a promise that will teach us how to deal with lost time. But let me set the context first, because we're looking at a book, a minor prophet. They're called minor only because they're shorter than the long-winded prophets. Um, the, uh, if the long-winded, the long-winded uh, winded prophets are like me, long sermons, the short, the minor prophets are Presbyterians. That's how I like to say it. <laughs> you know, 20-minute sermons, and that's good, but powerful, powerful, powerful material. So, that's the deal. And here's the context. God's people had had a, a, a civil war. The kingdom was split in two. You have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. Eventually, the Assyrians came, conquered the north. Eventually, the Babylonians came, conquered the Assyrians, uh, swept south, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem. Israel as a nation ceased to exist, 586 B.C. All through that time of decline and conquering, prophets were speaking, calling Israel to uh, return to their, to their true identity and calling, right? And, and so this prophet, Joel, is the only one of the prophets where we, we don't get a time stamp based on who the reigning king is. There's no king mentioned. And so many think that this is because he was speaking during the only time that Judah had a queen in power, Queen Athaliah, around 835 B.C., uh, and, and that makes sense as well because Joel calls people to re- repentance and, and, and promises restoration. And after J- Joel speaks, there is historically repentance and restoration after Queen Athaliah. So around 835 B.C., if you're interested in that kind of historical alignment, it's significant in that it is history. And then uh, so Joel comes on the scene and he gives us two steps toward recovering our true identity and, and dealing with this kind of lost, the lost years, the lost time. Two steps. First step, pay attention to the sign. Second step, make moves to align. Pay attention to the signs. What does that mean? Well, look at the book of Joel. Um, and I have to just turn in my Bible again. Uh, look here at verse 3. So Joel's speaking now to the nation of Israel. Something's happened. It'll be apparent in a second. Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons, their sons, the next generation. In other words, don't ever forget what you're seeing right now. Well, what are we seeing? Here's what we're seeing. 
The gnawing, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. In other words, uh, in the nation of Israel, an agrarian society living really off the fruit of abundance that comes from, from the vineyards, right? It's, a, it's wine country, right? And what happened is there were four swarms of, uh, swarms of locusts that came in. <clears throat> Four times, and they ate, and they stripped, the, they, not only did they strip the vine, but there was nothing left, like four swarms, swarms of locusts. Now, if you live in Seattle, you've never seen a swarm of locusts, probably, but I, you know, I grew up in the Central Valley, as I just shared, and Bakersfield had literally a plague of grasshoppers uh, one, one summer, and I was there, and there were literally clouds of grasshoppers. It was unbelievable, and if you had, if you had a garden, you didn't have a garden anymore because they came in and they, they, just, they just ate everything. My sister lived in, uh, in Bakersfield, and so we're down there. And you know, grasshoppers aren't quiet either, right? And so a couple grasshoppers, and you're like, oh, that's, that's cute and that's sweet. You know, a million grasshoppers right outside your door and in your house. Like I, I said to my sister, like, are you guys the Egyptians and these are the plagues of Egypt that God has, you know, what, what, what sin has Bakersfield committed that this is... This is going on, but anyway, there were the, like, like there's a swarm. So imagine now a swarm times four, right? And so, so here's the point. There's no, there's no, there are no grapes left. And if there's no grapes, there's no economy. And everyone is weeping. Verse five, uh, the drunks are weeping. I mean, obviously, Right? <laughs> If you're an alcoholic and you have no access to alcohol anymore, that's a bad day. Uh, the, I mean, it's a good day ultimately, but it's a bad day in the sermon. Uh, the virgins are weeping who are going to have a wedding, verse 8. Why? Because if you know it, if you read your Bible, you know in John chapter 2, if you have a wedding, you don't have wine at the wedding, it's a sign that your family will not be blessed. Like it's a sign of a curse not to have wine. That's why it's such a big deal when they ran out of wine in, in John chapter uh, 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine. Yeah, so uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, Jesus c- compares the whole nation of Israel to a vineyard, and he says the whole point of a vineyard, why do people plant vineyards? Well, it's not because the grape wood makes good you know, firewood or anything like that. The only reason you plant a vineyard is you're interested in what? The grapes, the fruit, the vine, the wine. It's the only reason. And if, there's no, if there are no grapes, the vineyard has lost its purpose. You were made for this, you're now this, right? So watch, this is Israel, and what's going on with the locusts is an outward display of a spiritual problem. You're made for this, you're ma- Israel, you're made to be a vineyard, but you're not a vineyard anymore. The locusts have stolen everything. Church, you're made to be fruitful. John 15, Jesus said it. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Here's the promise. You will bear fruit. You will be people of joy, hope, mercy, generosity, peace, abundance. That's your calling. You're made for this. You're living here. <laughs> that's, uh, so that's what's going on. So the principle's clear. Fruitfulness is a sign that you're abiding in Christ. And that means, abiding means, you're living in an intimate relationship with Jesus. You're receiving revelation from Jesus, not just in the text, but through the body. You have significant relationships. This is why we just did this thing about groups here, calling people uh, to create groups and get involved in groups. 
You're receiving from the text. You're receiving from Christ. And not just receiving, but responding, allowing revelation from Christ to shape you so that you're moving more and more and more and more toward the life for which you're created. This, I mean, we're made to be fruitful people. And so Jesus says, it's very simple. If you abide in me, you'll have fruit. You'll increasingly know fruit. And the converse corollary is obvious. If you cut yourself off from the vine that is Christ, then you won't be fruitful. I'm making a bonsai redwood tree right now for fun. And, and when you cut off branches, you, you, I just leave them uh, in, the, in the bowl there. And they're, when you cut off, they're green. But very quickly, they're not green anymore. When you cut something off from the source of life, if you're made for this and you're here, and you, and, and you cut yourself off from revelation. You cut yourself off from community. You cut yourself off from repentance. You will drift away. You won't be fruitful. <laughs> and you're made to be fruitful, right? So fruit should be kind of the primary criteria of a life well lived. In other words, what do you want more than anything else in your life? Financial stability, upward mobility, six figures, cushy retirement, travel, great reputation, great, great pleasures, good food, good sex. Is that what you're after? Look, whatever. That's not God's goal. God's goal for you, fruit. In other words, uh, that you would look more and more like Christ, and fruit is actually clearly defined in the Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says it this way. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Live that way, and not only will you know the fruit of looking more and more like Christ, you're living uh, closer to the identity, the, the person God had in mind when God made you. Not only will you live into that, but now as such a person, the light of Christ will shine through you. Other lives will be blessed and transformed because of you, because of us together. We're, we're made for fruit, you see? And so this becomes a hugely important criteria, and then it becomes pretty obvious in our lives uh, when the locusts are taking hold, because we will see the locusts by the conspicuous absence of fruit. Does that make sense? Like if I'm called to self-control, and then uh, I'm in traffic, and, you know, someone cuts me off, or that never happens here anymore because traffic doesn't move. <laughs> I'm just on I-5, and I've moved a mile in an hour, and I'm impatient, and I'm shaking and I'm pounding and my heart is beating, this should be kind of a warning. <laughs> Locusts are in the car. Do you understand? Like, like you right now, Richard, this is not fruit. This is not, this is not Jesus. This lust is not Jesus. This eating issue is not Jesus. This massive credit card debt because I self-covered by shopping is not Jesus. This wasting time watching reruns is not Jesus. This, this rage is not Jesus. This stale marriage is not Jesus. So the locusts are a way of saying, wake up. Like you're made for fruit. Why are you settling for not fruit? The not fruit should be kind of this wake-up call that causes you to begin asking important, life-changing, existential questions. Instead of fruit, locusts. What does that mean? It means lots of things. 
Instead of the creativity for which you are made, you're just a consumer. Instead of community, you're, you're isolating yourself. Instead of generosity, you're hanging on to your money. Instead of using your gifts, you're living in apathy. Instead of hard conversations, you're, you're making superficial peace. Instead of forgiveness, there's bitterness. Like these are locusts. And they're stealing your fruitfulness. And, 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 and so the beginning of any transformation in our lives is waking up to the fact that I have some locusts. <laughs> in other words, we can look good outwardly, but outward looking good is never God's criteria for a life well lived. I can have a great doctrinal statement. I can be a successful pastor. But if inside it's rotten, eventually it comes out. You can have an outstanding Christian reputation, but if inside there's, there's greed, there's fear, there's, proud, there's pride, eventually it comes out. And, 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 and so when things come out, uh, they often come out too late. And the reason they come out too late is because we don't do the work of recognizing the locusts. Are there locusts in the room right now? Yeah. Stripped vines in the room right now? Absolutely. Yeah, we need to wake up and, and pay attention to the fact that though I'm called to here, I'm here. And to the extent that I have made peace with being here rather than here, I will continue to drift farther and farther away until it is undeniable, not just to me, but to everyone in the room, I have drifted. Move now. That's what Joel's saying. It's a wake-up call. So, now that God has Israel's attention because there's no wine... Joel speaks, and he said, they, people are like this, well, what should we do? And this is where the word repent comes in. And I've kind of uh, given you an idiom for repent, because repent is an often misunderstood word. Repent means this, make moves to align your life with your purpose. Does this make sense? Like, align your life with the life for which you're created. Move. That's repentance. The word repent, I mean... Metanoia means change your mind, but it means change your, change your direction. So the catastrophe in this case, interestingly, is national. It's collective. And this is almost unfathomable in our culture because um, individualism is an idol in our culture. Like we're in, we, come, we often gather as individuals. We leave as individuals. Uh, maybe we have a family unit, but it's like it's me and my family. And because we live in that mindset... When something goes wrong, the question that we ask is who's to blame for this? And we want to pin the blame on someone rather than collectively owning the, 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 the problem. But I'm just going to say it's very important we understand here. Look, you are linked into communities. You, 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 yes, you're an individual, but you're more than an individual. You're an individual and you're a couple. You're a couple and you're a family. You're a family and you're a neighborhood. You're a neighborhood and you're a city. You're a city and you're a state. You're a state and you're a nation. And we're, we're a global collective in humanity. And at various point, points in history, it's vital that we understand that though one leader may be out front, everybody uh, will face the consequences of the decisions of one. Look, with Hitler, Hitler didn't just suffer. Germany suffered. With Pol Pot, Pol Pot didn't just suffer, Cambodia suffered. With Idi Amin, it's not just that he suffered as the leader, Uganda suffered. When, when one goes bad, it affects the whole. In a family system, you, there's one alcoholic, the whole family owns it. They have to own it. You can't just pin the blame on the one. It's not his problem, it's our problem. When I go bad, it's not my problem, it's our problem. When you go bad, it's not your problem, it's our problem. 
because we are inextricably linked together. And so what God is saying here in the book of Joel is, look, you guys need, it's called here, a solemn assembly. Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. What's a solemn assembly? A solemn assembly is a meeting where a collective group of people go, look, we are here and God wants us here. And then we pray and we say, God, move us here. Move us here. We want to be nothing less than what you have designed for us to be. Now, solemn assemblies don't have to just be in buildings like this, but they have been in buildings like this. When we, when, when we built this building, there were two. One before uh, there was any carpet. If you ripped the carpet up, you'd see names and prayers written on the cement here in this building, right? Uh, why? Because we're praying for our neighbors. We're praying for our city. We're praying for our world. That's why we exist. So the light of Christ can liberate and bring hope to people beyond these walls. And then once we had the carpet laid down, the very first meeting we had in here was a, was a prayer meeting. And I'll never forget, not only was it full, but people are streaming forward, praying for our city, for our world. We need that again. Because it's easy to kind of dial it in after a period of time and say, yeah, we gather, we do our thing, whatever. Not whatever. 1,100 people moving into Seattle every week. Moving in with their stories, with their addictions, with their fears, with their anxieties, with their materialism, with their upward mobility, with their gifts, with their creativity, with their energy, with their joy, all needing Christ. And Christ is discovered not through individuals and good preaching. Christ is discovered through community. It's our responsibility to be here. So solemn assemblies. But not just in big communities. Families have solemn assemblies. Families have meetings. And they're like this. Do you know what? We need a meeting. Because uh, we're called to this. But alcoholism or consumer debt or unemployment or cancer have created a moment. And we recognize that though we're called to this, we're stuck here. We need the empowerment of God. Yeah, it happens. And it happens with couples. My, Donna and I have had... In 38 years of marriage, a few solemn assemblies, just the two of us, and they're powerful, embedded in my memory, on our knees, in our apartment, in Los Angeles, 110 degrees outside, praying together, saying, God, we're stuck, and we know we're made for this, but we're here. Would you move? And God moves. Do you need a solemn assembly? Maybe you need one in your family. Maybe we need one. We'll have a mini one here at the end. Solemn assemblies have fallen on hard times because of hyper-individualism, but they can and should still happen. And a solemn assembly is only as effective as each individual in that assembly is actually repenting. So this brings me to the other piece of this alignment thing where Joel speaks to everybody and what he basically says in verse 13 is this. Hey, make sure when you're repenting that you rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. Rend your hearts, not the Why is this important? It's important because it gets to the core of what real confession is, what real repentance is. Uh, in Israel's history, uh, there's this kind of rhythm of here's my calling and I'm aligned. You know, God parts the Red Sea, for example, and we walk through 
And we're like this, God is amazing, we love God. So we're aligned, right? And we're worshiping, we've just seen God provide. And then, you know, we go three days into the woods, we're thirsty, and we're like this, stupid God, no water. And now we're down here. We're complaining, we're doubting God's goodness. And then, you know, God gives water, and we're like, oh, this is, you know, oh, good. Up again, and then we're hungry. Oh, stupid God, down here again. You know, back and forth, back and forth. And then when we're down here, there's a few times in the, in the scriptures where it's very apparent when we're down here, and we see that we're down here, and we're like this, I chose to walk away from God, and we're overcome with this sense of grief. And then literally what would happen back in the day is people would tear their clothes as an outward sign of this grief. I want to be here, not here. And they tear their clothes. But he, now here's the danger. Over, over time, people would drift away, and now I'm down here, but they're kind of wallowing down here in in the symptoms of my drift, and all I want from God is I want God to fix the symptom. Does this make sense? So here's what happens. We drift away, and suddenly there's this wake-up call. Man, I've been wasting time, and it has to do with um, a tarnish on my reputation. God, would you fix my reputation? God, uh, look, someone's sick in the family. God, we want healing. Oh, we're unemployed. God, we need a job. Oh, you know, we're, 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 we're frustrated right now. We feel at a dead end. God, we need guidance. And so we come to God for the, for the thing, but we don't really want necessarily God. We want the thing. Are you with me so far? So, so now, here's what happens. I just want the thing, so what do I do? Well, oh, God wants me to repent. What does repentance look, uh, what does repentance look like? That's right. <coughs> there, God, you satisfied? Now, give me my health back. And God's like this. No, no, you totally missed the point. Every parent in the room understands this. I say to my daughter when she's four, I'll never forget, time to clean your room. Nothing. Total neglect. So I get bounced off of her. I'm being creative. Chaos. Time to clean your room. Time to clean your room. Right? And then, you know, finally this big confrontation, whatever. This is not a parenting sermon. There's probably better ways to do it, but whatever. <laughs> Clean your room, right? And then, she, so then she does it, and she's like this. There, satisfied. <laughs> and I go, I, I think your attitude's really bad. And she, then she, this is what she said. Sorry, sorry, there, satisfied. <laughs> like she, oh, do you get it? Like, oh, okay. What can I say to dad to get him off my back? Oh, you want sorry? Here, sorry. Oh, you want to put the Legos in a box? <clears throat> Done. Now get out of my life. I, I mean, I'm, I'm venting a bit, but it happened years ago. <laughs> right? I just, look, I just, and we do it in our marriage. We get in a, at an impasse, and then you know how it goes. Well, what do you want from me? Oh, yeah. You want to take the kids for a day? I'll take them. I'll take them. There. Happy now? <laughs> no, I'm not happy now because I don't want your obedience. I want your what? Heart. God doesn't want your ripped clothing. Are you kidding me? He, he owns Value Village. He can get ripped clothing. <laughs> like, like, what does God want? What does God want from you? Let me, let's phrase the question differently. Like, what do you want? Oh, here's what I want. I want no cancer in my family. Well, that's not the right answer. I want a, I want a better job. Not the right answer. 
I want spectacular sex with my spouse. Not the right answer. I want a good reputation. Not the right answer. I want Christ. Right answer. And Jesus, by drifting, yes, there are outward consequences. In my, maybe in my body, maybe in my marriage, maybe financially. Yeah, there's outward consequences. I've made some stupid decisions, and now I'm, I'm wallowing in the fruit of my stupid decision. But listen, Jesus, what I want isn't for you to fix the situation. That's totally secondary. I know you'll fix the situation in your way, in your time, but what I want, what I need more than anything else is intimacy with Christ. I want to know him. That's it. And if that's not the goal, then it's not really repentance. If all I want is Jesus to fix my circumstance, I have missed the point. Because ultimately, I am not made to live in this hermetically sealed bubble whereby I'm protected from all suffering. That's not my calling. My calling is nothing less than union with Christ. And if he suffers, I suffer. If he dies, I die. If he rises again, I rise again. But what I want more than anything is union with Christ. Why? That's the life for which I'm created. That's the life for which you're created. That's the life for which we collectively are created. Don't settle for anything less. And when circumstances cause us to recognize our drift, the wrong prayer is Jesus fix my circumstances. No. The right prayer is, Jesus, make me what you want me to be and start with uniting me with you. I want to know you in a real way. That's it. In other words, rend your heart, not your garment, means this. Real repentance always starts in the heart and works its way out. Always. Because, you see, the reality is the problem always starts in the heart. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned and the, the, the whole story of eating the fruit... Eating the fruit is not the, the first sin, no. Long before there's eating the fruit is the doubting of the goodness and trustworthiness of God. God has made you to live kind of in union with God, receiving from God continually in a posture of humble obedience. Oh, this is what God wants from me? Here's the answer then. Yes, I want that. But instead, there's a drift that happens before there's ever a bite taken of fruit. And the drift is this, in my heart I begin to wonder, is God good? Do I really want this or do I want to live on my own? And that's in the heart. And so in, in, in Joel's day, the heart problem had begun long before the outward display of a problem. Long before the locusts showed up, there was a heart, there was a heart issue. And, and in Matthew 15, you, you see that it's very easy for all of us in the room to get obsessed with the outward form uh, because there's this conversation going on in, in Matthew 15 between Jesus and th some theologians and the theologians are saying, you know, if you don't wash your hands properly, then uh, you'll be unclean because you'll touch food and then you'll eat and then the food will be unclean and then you'll be unclean. So uh, Jesus, how come your disciples aren't doing the, the hand thing right? What's up with that? Right? And then Jesus basically says, and I paraphrase for time, but basically Jesus says, look, here's the deal. What you put in is not the issue, ever. In fact, you actually should eat a little dirt once in a while, but that's a different sermon. It's good for your gut. Uh, what you put in isn't the problem. What's the problem? <laughs> what comes out. Why? Because what comes out, listen, what comes out originates in your in your heart. Lust, greed, murder, cynicism, fear, bitterness, 
anger. Deal with the heart. Deal with the heart. Don't worry about these outward ceremonies. We think, oh, just go to church, call it good. Just put a couple bucks on the plate, call it good. Just do kind of the form of Christianity, call it good. Look, Jesus, he's not interested in the form. Always the issue is the heart. Everything starts with the heart. And so you in your heart, here's the question, you in your heart, to the extent that you're here and created to be here, do you want union with Christ or do you just want a good reputation? And if I want union with Christ, then I have, to, I have to move in my heart because that's where all the movement really begins. If the problem began in the heart, that's where the solution is. And so how, how does you fix the matter? Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Return with all your heart. So the, all your heart means there might be terrain in your heart still uh, unconquered by Christ. So when I'm called to return with all my heart, that I kind of do this inventory of my heart. What in my heart still needs fixing, do you see? We did a thing at a retreat a couple weeks ago. We shared our, kind of our life stories. We made these kind of life maps where you put sticky notes of significant events on a piece of paper. And I'd actually never, I'm 60, but I'd never done that before. And I, and I thought, oh, it's a little thing. You just do it, whatever. And then I'm doing this thing and I start just weeping. I'm out and I've got my sunglasses on, I'm outside, and God is exposing an area in my life, a whole area of unconquered heart terrain. Man, alive. And I shared it with Eric and others that were there. Do you have unconquered heart terrain? Maybe. It's really important that, 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 that we then, once God exposes it, that we then say, man, God, I don't want to stay here. I want to be free. It needs to happen in all of our lives. So, finally, there's a promise with which we conclude. The promise is uh, uh, in 225 where Joel says, look, you return to me. Uh, and God says, I'll make up for you for the lost years that the locusts have eaten. Nothing's wasted, in other words. Nothing's wasted. This is an astonishing verse. He makes up to us for the wasted years. Uh, a famous climber just died this spring, Royal Robbins, and I'm reading some eulogies of his. He'd written a letter to his daughter, and in the letter, this is what he says, and I quote, I want to live this year as if it were my last, and I will hate every time I fall behind, b- below that standard and fritter seconds or minutes or hours away in foolishness, resentment, weakness, or any of the seven deadly sins. I will, I will resent every second that I waste in anything less than God's fullest purpose. That's a... That's a climber who died of an illness. But I love his heart of saying, man, I don't want to waste a second. Here's the problem. All of us know it. We've wasted not seconds. We've wasted days. We've wasted hours. We've wasted weeks of our lives. And it can be so demoralizing that that we feel unworthy to get back into God's game. Does that make sense? But the promise of Joel 2.25 is this. Look, nothing's wasted. This wasted time, not wasted. Because when you return to me, that waste of time or that, that, uh, that year of stale marriage or 10 or that infidelity or that addictive behavior or that, or that, or that shame-filled night of, of unbridled lust, whatever it is, no, I can, that's redeemable. It becomes a redemptive part of your story. Nothing's wasted if you just return to Christ. So this becomes a 
like this profound promise for all of us. I've been facing some, I know I'm called to, to write a little bit and I've been facing some frustrating elements about the writing side of me recently and I just stopped writing basically in, in January. Instead of writing, uh, at the time I normally write in the evenings, I started watching Frasier. Do you guys know this like <laughs> show? Like I really like Frasier and so I started watching Season one, episode one, because I can get it for free on Amazon Prime. Prime, And then I was like, oh, I'll just watch another one, another one, another one. And I kept watching. And then j just last week, um, I finished season 11. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 11 seasons. And, and, and then this week, uh, I, I started watching season one again. And then I studied Joel, and I was like this. Look, this is, this is lost. Nothing wrong with Frazier. Don't miss me. But this is, this, is an, this is like an escape from a frustration and a, and a forfeiture of time, precious time that could have been creative. I need to repent. I need to repent. Start doing again what I'm made to do. And here's the beauty of it. God's promise. Don't worry, Richard. I can redeem it. I don't know how yet, I'll let you know. But it's redeemable. All we need to do is return. As we close, we, we are, this morning we're going to do a, a, a solemn assembly because the beauty is this. When we wander in the wilderness of doubt, we come back with stronger faith. When we're plunged into times of darkness, we come back loving the light. When uh, we lose our dad, we become a person who loves the Father heart of God. Whatever it is that is in your story, it's redeemable. Nothing is lost. But our calling, always return. I just have a burden, you guys, that 1,100 people a week are moving into Seattle and that we have seats here that are empty. <laughs> and I mean moving into Seattle, not just suburbs, into our city. You know it. If you drive anywhere, you know it. Rather than a burden, it's an opportunity. It's 1,100 stories a week. It's 1,100 people uh, needing Christ every week. And the prayer is simply this. Jesus, uh, would you allow your Holy Spirit to fill us individually, as a community? May we abide in you so that you so transform us that the light of Christ shines with increasing clarity into our city and our world. We pray for these new people that are coming in. Lord, would they discover Christ? We pray for our city and those who have been here for 20 years. May they know Christ so that the lives for which people have been created can begin to be expressed. This is our calling, to call people into that light. So we're just going to take a minute here, and Eric's going to play a little music, and we're going to pray. I think there might be some uh, prayer guidance up here. And I'm going to ask you, we do this once in a while, pray in groups of two, three, four, for a city. If you're uncomfortable praying aloud, don't pray aloud. And if you're in a group and you're comfortable praying aloud, don't judge those who are uncomfortable, right? Let's just take some time, and after a couple of minutes of praying together for our city, we'll close by worshiping together. Father, meet us now as we respond in prayer. Our desire is that the light of Christ would shine fully and that we would have hearts both humble enough and courageous enough to repent and ask that you would make us all that you want us to be individually, as families, and as a church that we might rep represent your heart. Meet us now, we pray in Christ's name. Let's pray together. Grab a couple people and pray.